Um, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 40 this morning and uh, find out what God seems to be saying to us out of these. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I heard of him uh, that if he was doing a, a verse and it had two ideas in it, he preached two sermons. Um, and so that's probably why it took him 13 years to preach through the book of Romans. But uh, we're looking at about 30 verses this morning, and there are lots of lessons in here. And so what I want to encourage you to do as we go through here is as I highlight lessons, pick one that stood out to you and be ready to share with somebody else what stood out to you from God's Word and why it stood out to you. Um, and uh, ask somebody what stood out to you this morning from God's Word. Or if they don't ask you, you um, or you don't want to ask them, why don't you just tell them? And that'll help you stay alert. But I know God wants to say something to you in His Word this morning. Um, I'm going to just pray again. I know we pray a lot. Um, but I just feel the need for that this morning, that God would speak to us by His Spirit. Father, thank you so much for the intensity of your love for us. Any love that we could imagine on earth, whether it be between, be between a mother and a child or a husband and a wife, is not passionate enough to display what your love is like. We thank you for the passion of your love for us, and you want to talk to us this morning. You care about us. You care about what's happening in our lives. And you've given us your word and then the practice of preaching or teaching to bring to our hearts the comforts you want to give us, the direction you want to give us, and even the correction you want to give us. And we ask that you would take liberty with us this morning to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we've been looking at the story that we find in the book of Acts that describes how the kingdom of God invaded earth and began to spread across the Roman Empire. In three decades, there were churches in almost every um, major city in the Roman Empire. So that was pretty impressive. People came to faith in Jesus and they were immediately transformed and brought into the kingdom of God. Now they were in the world, but they were not of the world. They were very different people. They couldn't live the way they used to live. They had a power within them, the Spirit of God, who pressed them forward to live for the kingdom of God. But as people became part of the kingdom of God... How did they stay strong? How did they um, be effective? How did they keep on growing, all these individuals that were coming to faith in Jesus? And the answer is something we're quite used to, but the answer is that they bonded together into local groups that we now call churches. That's how they continued to grow. That's how they stayed faithful. That's how they came strong. As they bonded together and as the Spirit of God gave everyone different, a different kind of gift to exercise for the help of others, they stayed strong as the Holy Spirit worked among them. And so every person who came to faith in the book of Acts immediately became part and active in a local church. You and I have to be part of a local church. We have to be an active part of a local church. That's God's plan. He never made us to be lone rangers, to be on our own, to be healthy apart from him, or for the church to be healthy apart from us. We are supposed to belong to a healthy church, and healthy Christians belong to a church and are active in it. Now, if local churches played such a great role uh, in Acts, how did these churches get started? 
How did these churches get started? Paul was a great church planter. How did he do it? What did he do? How did he go about getting a church started in a city? He had no internet, so he couldn't advertise that. There were no newspapers or magazines that he could put ads into. Uh, there were no radio stations. Uh, there was no printing press to print banners. How did he go about getting people to be part of a local church? What do you do when you walk into a city like Philippi? We're going to look at that today. And nobody there is a believer in Jesus. How can you go into that city one day and three weeks later you have a church that's going on there? How did he do that? Well, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, does not describe the founding of every church in Acts, but he does describe the founding of the church in Philippi and how that got started. This was the first church on European soil. It was also one of Paul's favorite churches because they hung in there with him all the time. They sent him money when other churches weren't supporting him. So they were one of his favorite churches. And Luke describes how this church got going. And he does it by providing three cameos or three stories of different people who were involved at the time planting. And each of these cameos is full of lessons for us that we can live by. In Acts chapter 16, we meet a wealthy, God-seeking businesswoman. And then we meet an interested, demon-possessed slave girl. And finally, we meet a tough, blue-collar jailer. And at least two of these became the nucleus of the church in Philippi. So let's look at Cameo 1, a seeking businesswoman. We read in verse 11, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, Troas to Neapolis was about 150 miles by sea with a layover in Samothrace. And once you got to Neapolis, you had a 10-mile walk to get to Philippi. I just had to think about that a bit. I had to try to imagine what that was like traveling for 150 miles by sea and then walking for another 10 miles and just trying to put myself into the shoes of these missionaries. Now, in 31 BC, Octavian uh, gave the city the status of colony. And what that means is really important. This is the only city in Acts, by the way, that Luke tells us was a Roman colony. There were other places that were Roman colonies, like Troas, which he's already mentioned, but he doesn't say it was a Roman colony. And Pisidian Antioch was a Roman colony. He doesn't mentioned that fact that it's a Roman colony, but he does about Philippi. Why does he do that? It's important to the story, and we'll find that out. Roman colonies were originally settlements of Roman citizens in conquered territory, and so they would take surplus Italian population, and they would move it to this city that they had conquered. The other thing they would do is that they would send retiring soldiers to these colonies, and they would pension them off by giving them land. And so these colony cities were very Roman. And it was a point of pride 
to that city. They identified as Romans. They didn't identify as Macedonians. They didn't identify as Philippians. They were Romans. They were little Rome over there in Philippi. They were also free from paying taxes or tribute. And their form of local government was Roman. So it's very important to them. And that's why Luke mentions it. Now, when I read these verses, these verses that we've just looked over, it's really easy to kind of gloss over the things that are not said that probably were there. Things like the mundanity of their mission work, the frustration that would come along with everything they had to do. Luke does not picture those things for us, but they must have been there. And you get a hint of it in the little details, like a 150-mile journey by sea, walking for 10 miles from one city to the next, you know, and you start to begin to picture this. And it's a little bit like the holiday pictures that we post on Facebook, right? Uh, it looks so fun, you know. Uh, here's me sitting by the campfire, so relaxing, cup of coffee in your hand, or this is us lounging by the pool with our lemonade in our hand. But it doesn't tell, you know, all the details that came before that. You know, like the headache of packing things up and getting your obligations met before you can leave and finding somebody to look after the house and finding somebody to take care of the dog and water the garden and, you know, settling the fighting down with the kids while you're traveling along to this relaxing place. And all those details we don't put in our Facebook pictures. We don't see all the stress and the frustration and things like that that got us to our holiday place. And all these things had to have been part of this missionary journey. Paul and Silas would have had the ordinary, the mundane, the frustrating things that they had to get done. And it just reminds me that serving God is not one highlight picture after another. There's a lots of mundane in between. Take courage, you know, if you feel like your highlights are just once in a while and there's so much mundane and so much frustration and so much hard work in between. Because that's what it was like for these guys. It's making plans and facing obstacles and getting tired and messing up and organizing and then organizing again and changing your plans and adjusting to new realities. That's what happened with these people. Now, we read in verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So Paul's normal approach was to look for what we might call today people of peace. People who weren't um, hostile to the idea of God, people who actually were looking for God. And for him... The first place he would usually go was to a synagogue where the Jewish people already believed in the Je Jehovah of Christian faith. He might find somebody there who was open to this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he would normally go there. However, regulations required that before a synagogue could be built, there had to be at least 10 Jewish men. And that tells you something about Philippi. The fact that there was no synagogue in this very Roman colony and that Paul only found women at the place of prayer out, outside the city gates yet tells us two things. There were fewer than 10 men ready to identify as followers of Jehovah in that whole city. 
And this group of women were quite marginalized. They met outside the city walls. This was a marginalized group of people. And it reminds us again that Jesus loves the marginalized. He goes looking for them. He calls them to himself. He loves the little people and often will pull them to himself. And so the church in Philippi began with women marginalized from their community. I wonder who's marginalized today and whether we're looking for them as well. You know, maybe it's those who are poor, those who can't work, can't earn an income, living on very meager means. Maybe it's the uneducated, people who don't seem maybe quite as smart as others. Or maybe in our obsession with Hollywood and glamour, maybe it's the people who don't seem so glamorous in our culture. But God loves them. Now, verse 14 says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord, er, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Thyatira was known for its purple dyes, and Lydia, who was born there, raised there, brought that business over to Philippi, and it seems that she was quite successful. Purple cloth, by the way, was very expensive and associated with royalty. So you had to have money to buy stock of that, and you had to, and you had to have money to buy it off, Lydia. And this, together with the fact that she goes on to host these missionaries in her home, and then later on, the whole church tells you she was a woman of means. She was a successful businesswoman. And you can tell that Lydia was a seeker after God because as Paul talked about Jesus, she listened. And that word listen there has a sense of intensity. She was listening to hear. She was hungry for the truth. She listened intensely. But there's something interesting here. At the same time, it wasn't her listening that opened her heart. It wasn't even Paul sharing the gospel that opened her heart, but God himself. All of a sudden, it made sense to her. All of a sudden, her eyes were opened as Paul was talking, and it all made sense. And this is the way God always works. God always works this way. Sharing the gospel alone won't save people, but God opens the heart only as the gospel is shared. The gospel has to be shared. God opens the heart as people hear the good news. And so I want to suggest something to you. If you are not a Christian, but you want God, then you should really listen to the gospel. You should listen to the gospel being preached. You should listen to the gospel being taught. You should read the gospels in the Bible. That's your only hope because God only opens the heart through the gospel. People have to hear the gospel. And if you are a Christian, then pray that God would make our gospel sharing effective. It doesn't matter how good Aaron's sermons are unless God opens the heart. Nothing is going to happen. Paul preached, but God opened the heart. 
A person can, can hear the gospel over and over and over. They can grow up in a Christian home listening to the gospel Sunday after Sunday in Sunday school, in youth group, and then in the sermons where the adults are all sitting. They can listen to the gospel over and over and still have a heart closed. God has to open the heart. I have watched many youth grow up in the church who never have their hearts opened. God has to open the heart. Now, when a heart is opened, how does it respond? What happens to a person with an opened heart? And we read in verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And I want you to notice that this woman's life was completely reoriented and changed. It was the sign of her heart being open. She wanted her whole household to hear about Jesus. And she probably called them all together. You got to hear this about Jesus. There's this guy here who's told us the Messiah has come. She also obeyed the command of Christ to follow him in baptism. Jesus now was her Lord. She identified with him as her Lord. She wanted to be part of the Christian work, and so she offered her home to the missionaries. She was excited to contribute. This whole idea of telling other people about Jesus enthused her. She wanted to be part of that. And she wanted to be part of the Christian community. These are the marks of an opened heart. Has your heart been opened? Is this true of you? These things are true of every heart-opened person. Or have you listened to the gospel, maybe, agreed with the gospel, but not had your heart been opened? You've listened. Your heart's still not open. You're still not enthused that Jesus should be your Lord. You're still not enthused to be part of this local body of believers. Has your heart been opened? So that's Lydia, Lydia and the first cameo, the first story. Cameo number two is a demonized slave followed by some secular support society. And you know, the contrast between Lydia and this slave girl could hardly be any greater. Let's read about this in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Sounds good, doesn't it? You know, Lydia was Asian. That is, she was native to Asian. The slave girl was native Greek. Lydia was wealthy. The slave girl was poor. Lydia was a God-fearer. The slave girl was controlled by a demonic presence. They were so different, these two. The phrase that you have in your Bible, a spirit by which she predicted the future, is really a, a different phrase in Greek, but it's been interpreted for us so we'd understand. It literally, literally reads, she was a spirit python. A spirit python. 
According to mythology, the python guarded the temple of Apollo. And over time, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom python spoke. She was a pythoness. She spoke for the python, the guardian of Apollo. A pythoness made clairvoyant predictions um, and uttered words in all sorts of strange voices. And you might think the local population would shun them and be a little nervous. No, they actually, they, they were either neutral towards a pythoness or they actually thought it was really good and they would pay money to have their fortunes told. That was this girl. And I want you to notice that this possessed slave girl is drawn to Paul and Silas as they do missionary work. It's like a, a moth to the flame. She can't resist. She, she slides over to them wants to be associated with them. And what she calls out is true. They were servants of the Most High God, and they were telling people how to be saved. But something was missing in this girl. Satan loves to attach himself to the mission of God. Loves it. Loves to attach himself to the church. I've often seen people who seem very drawn to the church, want to get involved, but something, something is missing. Something is wrong. And this female slave, there's something wrong. This female slave and her audience, they were polytheists. That is, they believed in many gods. And when she said that these men are servants of the Most High God, she may well have been thinking they are, they are servants of the highest God in the pantheon gods. Not the same idea of God that we might have. And then um, she may have had her, listen she and her listeners probably understood being saved in a different way from Paul and Silas. You know, as I thought about this, I thought the world and the flesh and the devil are always trying to be part of God's mission. They, they seem sincere, but ultimately they are not controlled or guided by Jesus. That was the case here. They begin pressing for things to change to accommodate the flavor of the culture today. They want rules changed. They, they press for compromise. They demand to have a say in how things go on in the church. And yet the whole time that this slave girl is trying to identify with the mission of God and seeming to promote the mission of God, she is in fact still under the control of demonic powers. She was lacking the changes that Lydia experienced. She had not identified with Jesus as her Lord and doing this in baptism. She was not living in obedience to Christ. She wanted to join the cause but not the community. Paul endured her presence patiently for a time, but eventually he did what has to be done. He barred her from participation in the mission of God. He came against the power of darkness. And you know, as a church, we cannot join forces with anyone except those who are governed by Christ when it comes to the message of the gospel. We can't. Verse 18 says she 
kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. You know, we have to be bold. We have nothing to fear if we're bold, even if it gets us into trouble, and it certainly got Paul and Silas into trouble. Look at verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And I want you to notice something, that the slave girl's owner's concern was not for the girl. It was for money. But when they presented their case to the public, they didn't put it in such crass terms. They made it palatable. They appealed to racial prejudice. These, these men are Jews. They're not like us. They're not Romans like us. They accused them of harming the well-being of the general population. They're throwing our city into an uproar. And most importantly, they protest that they're a threat to our core value, being Romans. That's at risk. And so they try to turn the hearts of people against the mission. Now listen, God's mission to overcome um, the darkness will be very inconvenient for the world. And they will side with darkness. It becomes very inconvenient. The gospel challenges culture, changes culture. And the world will side with darkness rather than with light. That's what we see here for the wrong motives. And we see how easily a large population can be influenced. Somebody once said that the larger the crowd, the lower the IQ. <laughs> you see that here, the people are just not thinking. They're just swallowing all this propaganda. They're deeply influenced by it all. I mean, what had Paul done after all? He, he delivered a girl who was oppressed by a demonic presence, and he delivered her from the oppressive routine of life that she had to carry out for her owners. That's what he had done. He had delivered her through the power of God. But look how easily and violently the crowd responds in verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. I want you to notice just how hostile... The crowd is. I want you to notice that for a reason. The magistrates were no doubt inspired in their beating of these two missionaries because these beatings were public. They were meant to humiliate and dissuade any followers of these missionaries. And the crowd just urged them on. And as I thought about that, I thought about our Canadian culture you know, in the Canadian culture, there seems to be a belief that the greatest Christian failure is to offend the world and make it angry. We don't want to anger the world. 
We don't want to offend their sensibilities. We don't want to change culture too fast. Christians are afraid to be labeled negatively and to generate hostility. You have to avoid that at all costs. Don't say things that might offend. But if that approach is right, then boy, did Paul and Silas ever blow it. They really got people mad. <laughs> In fact, Jesus tended to get people mad. Jesus was speaking to his brothers once, and he said to them, the world cannot hate you. They didn't believe in him yet. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. I tell them what God says is right and everything else they know is evil. They don't like it. The mission of God is going to offend. It's an invasion of Satan's turf after all. We can't run away from offending our neighbors and offending the world, holding back what is true, lest they get angry with us. Paul and Silas didn't, and the world got angry with them. Now, God can take bad things and turn them into good, and we begin to see that in verse 25. And I want you to think about Paul and Silas and the circumstance they're in. Paul and Silas... Uh, they're only trying to serve God and help people, and uh, they seem to be hated by everyone. The whole crowd, the whole city is in an uproar hating them. They've been publicly degraded. Their bodies are bloody and aching. They have had their freedoms suspended. They feel alone and defeated. What do they do? And that brings us into that next cameo in verse 25, the cameo, the story about a hardened jailer. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And Luke presents this as having an impact on the other prisoners. They were listening. And you can just stop and imagine for a second what that might have been like. You know, they, here they are in, in this terrible Roman prison. It's around midnight, and all of a sudden one of the prisoners hears this. Da, 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 da. They're, what is that singing? And now they're trying to listen to the words, and then they hear these prayers. And they're trying to catch the words. It's just dead silent in the prison. They're trying to catch the words of Paul and Silas. Oh, Father, we know that you're in control. We thank you that your power is over this situation, or whatever they prayed. Please deliver us. Please help us. They were listening to that. When life has you down, do you know what you ought to do? You ought to pray and worship God. That will lift your spirits. I think that's why they prayed and worshiped God. They knew, as followers of Jesus, that when life seems at its worst, the best thing you can do is look at God for inspiration. And you look at God by holding in front of your eyes who he is, what's true about him, and you acknowledge that back to God. You tell God what he is like. You are all powerful. Nothing is out of your control. You design my life perfectly because you are infinitely wise. And it's as you worship and adore God and pray to him and put your petitions before him that your soul is lifted up and you want to sing. 
That's what's happening here with these people. Don't give in to despair. Don't give in to cynicism. Don't become a jaded person. Worship God. Praise him. Surrender to his will. Ask for his help. This is a picture of faith and suffering. This is how we are to live. You know, they didn't sit there going, wow, this hurts. You know, if God was with us, would this be happening? They didn't talk that way. They didn't complain, oh, this is so hard. We don't deserve this. How unjust. And Luke wants us to see, as he did back, you know, when Peter was in prison and the whole church was praying, he wants us to see that their deliverance came out of prayer. It's connected to prayer. Are you imprisoned in any way? Worship God and pray. Worship God and pray. The rest we're going to have to do quite quickly because there's lots to go. But let's, let's go through this. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And what's striking about this is uh, Paul and Silas don't bolt. They don't make a run for it. In fact, it seems they convinced everyone to stay. Instead of saving their own lives, they saved the jailer's life. And it reminds me, I mean, this was the guy who put their feet in stocks. That was another form of torture, by the way, to put person's feet in stocks. And it just reminds you of the character of Jesus. You know, as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or Stephen, back in chapter 7, as he's being stoned to death, he cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And it reminds you that when your heart is on mission, your own ego isn't important. The mission is the well-being of other people. And that's what we see here. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, the jailer could only conclude that the God of these prisoners he had abused was angry. There were earthquakes in Macedonia and in Greece quite frequently, and people associated an earthquake with one of the gods. And now he's just heard them praying to their God, and it's followed by an earthquake, and he is trembling with fear. He needs to be saved. So what did they say to him about being saved. Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so he, they give him, first of all, a very simple summary of how to be saved, believe in Jesus. And then they go on to explain what that means, who Jesus was, and what he had done for their salvation. And what's
really striking about this cameo of the jailer is that his transformation is just like Lydia's. So we have a salvation sandwich here. At the beginning and at the end and some foul meat in the middle. <laughs> There's a contrast here. Very different people, but they went through the same process with the same result. They both listened intently. They both heard the gospel. They both wanted others to hear the gospel. They both expressed faith in Jesus through baptism. And they both came to love the Christian community. An open heart. They were changed from the inside out. Let's read the last of the verses here. And then we'll be done. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. We want the crowds to see that we did nothing wrong. That's why it was important that this was a Roman colony and that there was Roman law. You were not allowed to beat a Roman citizen. You could beat others, aliens, without a trial. But you could not beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And Paul, for the sake of the church, not for his own ego, not for his own vendetta, but so they wouldn't treat the church this way. He said, no, 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 no. You accused us in front of the whole crowd. Now you're going to make it right in front of the whole crowd. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. There could have been a court case. They could have had egg all over their faces. They could have had a lawsuit. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So the mission of God grows numerically and stays healthy in strength through the health of local churches. This is what went into a local church. A local church is made up of those who are under the lordship of Christ and not others. Others can follow along. Others can listen, but they are not part of the local church. Local churches are made up of a variety of people who are all transformed in the same way. They have new hearts. Those are the members of the church. God opens up hearts through the gospel and always through hearing the gospel. That Sunday school class you teach, those children have to hear the message of the gospel, not just color nice pictures. They have to hear the essence of the gospel. When a person is saved, they immediately want to be part of a local body. Not a single person in the book of Acts became a believer and not an active part in their local church. Why don't we close in prayer and then we'll have another song of worship, I believe. Is that right, Nikki? Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this story about how a church got started in Philippi. We thank you for the lessons that we glean 
from Lydia. What an amazing transformation she went through. We thank you for the lessons that we see in the female slave who was controlled by an evil spirit and how willingly the whole world around her um, sided against the mission that changed her. Father, we thank you for this hardened Roman soldier who had become a jailer and how you reached into his life through a crisis. You reach many of us through crisis, and we thank you. Thank you for these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.